Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. My name is Mitra Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Charlie O'Connor. Charlie, what's going on, man? Uh, quite a lot, actually, yeah. especially over the past week, and given that I cover the Philadelphia Flyers. So uh, it hasn't been uneventful, I'll give you that. It certainly hasn't. We had to do this trade analysis reaction pod. We're doing it the morning after the big Rasmus just line in trade, but um, I wanted to give you a, a night to, to have a couple drinks, to, uh, <laughs> to let it marinate, to let it uh, digest fully, and... We're going to discuss it now, and hopefully people will listen at some point on Saturday here, uh, either during or after the draft, and the Flyers won't do anything other uh, crazy stuff in the meantime. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But um, it, was a, it was a big trade. It, uh, it was a big uh, day in the NHL for, uh, for big defensemen with name cachet, and Rasmus Salinen certainly fits into that tier along with Oliver Ekman Larson and Seth Jones as we saw moved as well. And I don't know, like, where do you want to start this one? Because obviously you having covered this uh, Flyers team for, for many years now in, in various capacities, you've seen quite a bit of, bit of things and you've certainly seen them, um, you know, make a questionable value moves based on players that they just seem to be infatuated with. And you've covered uh, various, um, you know, notable uh especially like anti-analytics players in terms of, <laughs> in terms of their, uh, their outputs over the years. But it, this kind of feels like it's a, it's a new high or a new low, depending on, uh, on the way you want to frame it. Yeah. The, the big thing I just keep coming back to with this trade is that it's a huge risk. It's a huge risk. And, you know, I'm not ruling out the possibility that the flyers could be right. And given the usage they plan to use Rasmus versus the line and in that he could be, good or fine or whatever, but it's a big risk because you're basically, I, I tweeted this out yesterday, last night, that you're trading for a theoretical. You're trading for the theory that Rasmus Ristolainen in a different place, given different usage, will be better than he's been the entirety of the rest of his career. And if they're right, that would be an amazing story. And I'd love to be the one to, to, to write about it and tell it. But it's a pretty big leap of faith and it's not like they gave up, you know, a fourth round pick to take that leap of faith. They gave up a first round pick and a second round pick to take a leap of faith on a guy who, you know, through his entirety of his career in Buffalo has never been a good, even strength defenseman. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning and work our way through. Cause I actually haven't had a chance so far this off season to discuss anything that the flyers have really done here in the podcast, dating back to um, the Ryan Ellis trade. And so I think it all starts, I guess, with the way the lasting impression of the 2021 
season in Philadelphia, right? The inescapable sure. stat. A lot of things obviously went wrong and they didn't live up to the expectations they had based on the way they had ended the previous season. But the 3.5 nearly goals against per hour that was the league worst rate was something that is really hard to overcome for anyone. Clearly, they weren't able to overcome that themselves. And so I, I, I just... I knew that it was bad defensively in terms of the goal suppression. And they obviously had a couple of very notable blowups against the Rangers in particular that everyone will remember, but it's, it's sort of remarkable to me considering the the quality of some of the teams we saw defensively throughout the league, whether it was teams like the ducks or the Canucks or the Blackhawks or any number of sort of bottom dwellers that you could list that the fires of all those teams gave up the most goals. Like to me, that, that, that is a remarkable stat because I knew it was bad, but when I like kind of did some research for this, I didn't realize it had actually been that bad. It was pretty rough to watch. And in fairness to the blue line core, which obviously Chuck Fletcher identified as something that he needed to shake up. You know, you mentioned the Ryan Ellis trade, obviously traded for Rasmus Ristolainen and yesterday. Um, it wasn't all on the defensemen. You know, they certainly could have played better. Um, Ivan Perov did not take a step, you know, in the wake of what was a really solid, you know, 2019, 2020 season alongside Matt Niskanen, Matt Niskanen surprisingly retired and Ivan Provorov took a step back. I mean, I, at the very least he stagnated if you account, maybe if you account for, um, you know, quality of partner, but I would say he took a step back. Um, Travis Sanheim got PDO to death. Um, so to use the name of the, uh, the podcast, uh, Phil Myers took a big step back. Um, and obviously he's no longer on the team. He was shipped out in the Ellis trade. Um, and it just, those were, I think the three guys they were depending on the most going into last year because they didn't replace Matt Niskanen and it just kind of blew up in their face. But as I said, it wasn't just the defense, you know, there were, there were definitely stretches where the defense was not playing poorly. It was that the goaltending was playing terribly. And the problem with that is that it sort of just becomes a spiral. You know, the goaltending plays poorly. So the defense try to do more and then they play poorly and then they don't bail out the goaltending and then it just turns into this death spiral. And that's more or less what happened. Um, you know, Carter Hart obviously was a mess, uh, particularly in March. The schedule was demanding because they had their COVID pause. So they had to cram more games in. So they had no time really to give Carter Hart a break. So they just have kept having to throw him out there and his head wasn't right. His game wasn't right. And he just kept getting clobbered. And you couldn't use Brian Elliott too much because he was 35 going on 36 and he was going to wear down and he ended up wearing down anyway and then playing about as bad as Harvard's playing. And then you had the defense that was a mess and the forwards, you know, especially in the first couple months of the year. And this actually didn't really show up on the score sheet as much because the Flyers actually were getting decent goaltending, but the forward core was not doing a good job supporting the the defense um you know elaine vino was really rightfully critical of you know the defensive effort and the de commitment to, to two-way play from the forwards especially in january and into february um so really it was an it was a team-wide failure which is why i think the flyers entered this offseason feeling like they really had to shake things up like i don't think they were ever going to you know give up on carter hart but they certainly were going to change up the defense. And I do think they also want to shake up the forward core a little bit. Now, whether they're going to, they're going to be able to do that, I don't know. I mean, they've they've burned a lot of assets so far addressing the defense. Um, but I think they want to. So, yeah, I mean, all this really does stem from, I agree, the fact that the defense core, not the defense core, just the team defense as a whole last year was just abysmal. And it, it goes to the entire team, not just the, the blue line. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I, I think there were certain instances, certainly where the mistakes were so glaring that, that 
it, just even casually watching you, 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 your eyes would gravitate toward them. And that's kind of the thing that you'd remember. Um, but then you look at the in totality and they were 11th in expected goals, 13th in high danger attempts against uh, 12th in shots against in, in terms of team metrics in terms of like 12, 12 lowest. Right. And so those are all kind of middle of the pack and, yeah. and certainly don't equate to a team that gave up as many goals as they did. Then you look at the goaltending, they had an 880 save percentage uh, as as, as a team, uh, and that'll certainly uh, mess with your bottom line in terms of the goals against. The Sharks were the second worst at 891, remarkably, uh, yeah. which is quite a big gap between the one two. Full per- one full percentage point worse than everybody. <laughs> and and it it's crazy because of the 60 goalies with 500 plus minutes, Carter Hart was 60th in goal save above expected, minus 24.5. Brian Elliott was 59th right behind him, <laughs> or right ahead of him, I guess, in minus 20.5. And I think it, you alluded to this, but with Elliott, now a 36-year-old UFA, it's very easy to sort of distance yourself from it, walk, walk away. Uh, I address that in free agency with any number of available options that can come in on a timeshare uh, for a reasonable value. With Hart, it's trickier because no one's giving up on him. He's 23 years old. In his first two years, he had a 9.17 and a 9.14, including a plus 7.3 goal save above expected in year two. And so with a goalie of his age and his pedigree, you're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And especially for this Flyers organization, it feels like, you know, they're obviously emotionally invested considering the revolving door they've had in net and sort of the promise he's shown. And I I imagine this offseason, they're going to become financially invested in him as well. So it makes it a lot easier to when you kind of factor all that in, go, okay, let's address the defense this offseason and make life easier for him and give him a chance to succeed actually moving forward as opposed to making some sort of crazy changes in that. And so from that perspective, it does make sense to me that that would be sort of their mandate for Chuck Fletcher heading into this offseason as sort of the one thing this team needed to address most. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing with Hart too, like, look, goalies are weird. There's always the possibility that Carter Hart is beginning his Matt Murray stage where everyone figures him out and he's just bad. But I still believe in the talent. I still believe in the person. You know, Hart was surprisingly forthcoming after the season um, about the mental challenges of the pandemic and how that impacted him. And I mean, I think a lot of us can can certainly empathize. Um, you know, with with the challenges of everything over the past you know year and change and isolation, especially if you live alone. And you know, when you're when you're Carter Hart and you're still a young guy, you're 22 years old, and you're going out there. And you're just playing way below you've ever played before. And then you go home at night and you just think about it by yourself. And maybe you go on social media and you read everybody ripping you and you read articles and you just go into this like like this really dark path. And I think he was down that, especially in March. So that's part of the reason why I don't worry that much about him. Because to me, last season was almost just this like, perfect storm of awful that isn't going to be repeated in his case. And I believe in the talent. I believe that he's going to work extremely hard this offseason um, to fix the, the technical issues in his game, which were real. It wasn't just mental. I mean, he was he was getting beat a lot high glove. And that was, I think, a technical change that, that he has to adjust. Um, but look, the Flyers, if they're going to turn this around, they were going to have to take leaps of faith on some players on the team. You know, they were they weren't going to be able to trade everybody to change everything. And Carter Hart is one of those players that you're just kind of going to have to take a leap of faith on. You're just going to have to figure, you know what, throw that the lad last year in the garbage. Let's just assume he's he's you know going to be good again next year. And if he's not, we'll deal with it. But 
you can't give up on a guy that talented. Like, it, it, there's another guy for another example of that is Oscar Limblom. Like, Oscar Limblom did not have a good year last year, but as an organization, like, you don't give up on a guy like that, considering the fact that it was his first season back from beating cancer and his body was not clearly, you know, fully back to 100% post treatment. You know, the guy's a great guy. You know, the character's there. You know, the hockey IQ's there. So you just operate on trust that give him a full off season to train and rebuild his muscle and rebuild his body now that he's a year removed from beating cancer. It'll come back and be the same, you know, play driving, you know, second, third line quality winger that you had before he was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. So, like, there's some players where you have to take leaps of faith on there's other players who the flyers clearly decided that hey maybe what we saw last year maybe that's them you know maybe phil myers isn't you know going to develop into a top pair defenseman like they hoped maybe nolan patrick is just never going to be the guy that they thought they were getting when they drafted him second overall so with the moves the flyers are making i think you're seeing which players they are willing to take the leap of faith on and which players they maybe came out of last season with a different opinion than they had before last season Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Recognize employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at customink.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Well, it's interesting you bring those two guys up, and it's a great segue to talk about Ryan Ellis and the first trade they made this offseason because I was pretty surprised by um, just how low the acquisition cost was considering everything for a player of Ellis's caliber. And I think it was universally sort of agreed upon as a, a very savvy, reasonable move on their part. Not that Ellis doesn't come with his own set of risks, right? He, he just, He's turned 30. He's got six years left at $6.25 million left on that deal. He's missed... 20 games each of the past two seasons, or I guess 22, uh, 22 years ago, 21 this past season, he's missed significant time in three of the past four years. But the thing with me, it's really encouraging is not only that when he's on the ice, he's still got tremendously positive impacts and is one hell of a player and, and figures if you do pair him up with Ivan Provorov to get the most out of him as well, and really give them an awesome play driving sort of dual threat, uh, defense pair. But also it uh, it initially signaled to me like, all right, like there's reason for optimism in terms of the direction the Flyers are headed in here because they clearly identified this guy 
who it would have been very easy for the old school conventional hockey type to look at him and be like, no, he's not worth prioritizing, but they clearly did. They paid a, a, a nice price for them, but still not, not insignificant in, in two young pieces and went and got them. And so for me, that, I, when I saw that, I was like, all right, this is, this is encouraging. And, and so I think that's the crazy part for me that uh, the same front office basically in a week can have these two almost polar opposite sort of thought process, two defensemen, but two wildly different players. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is wild that in the span of a week, they traded for an analytics darling and Ryan Ellis, and then probably the most hated analytics defenseman in hockey right now in Rasmus Ristolainen. It's a, it's a gigantic discrepancy without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, I love the Ryan Ellis trade and, um, and I'm not a, I'm not opposed to the idea of Phil Myers becoming a solid defenseman in the NHL. I think eventually he'll turn into probably a decent second pair guy. Um, but I mean, Ryan Ellis obviously has the upside to be far, far more than that, you know, to be a legitimate top pair borderline number one defenseman in the NHL and to get him for, you know, Myers. So obvious upgrade from Myers to Ellis and then Nolan Patrick, who I believe was going to get traded this off season. I mean, I think everyone sort of involved, including Chuck Fletcher, obviously, but I mean, Chuck Fletcher for a long time, had been a real defender of Nolan Patrick, um, you know, in conversations I've had with him. Um, but I think, everyone involved just sort of got the idea that maybe he needed a change of scenery, that maybe it just wasn't working out in Philadelphia. So I think he was getting moved regardless. You basically just trade it. You upgrade it from Myers to Ellis, and then you traded a guy who you were probably going to ship out anyway, because, you know, he just wasn't, didn't seem to be happy here. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was a great trade and people were through the roof and then they trade for rest for us to line in. And, you know, from what I've heard, based on, you know, the conversations I've had uh, with people, you know, in and around the Flyers. Number one, they really, really think that the Buffalo effect is real. I mean, that that's a big part of this, that they really believe that Buffalo just ruins guys. Um, the reason why I'm skeptical of that is because like seven, eight years, it's hard to say if that's Buffalo ruining a guy or if it's just that's him. I tend to lean more towards the like the latter, but I see where they're coming from with, you know, you see, for example, a guy like Brandon Montour, who pretty good in Anaheim, showing potential, gets traded to Buffalo, numbers go in the toilet, gets traded to Florida, and immediately his numbers are really good. And you look at that and you're like, man, what's in the water in Buffalo? Look at a guy like Colin Miller, great numbers everywhere else, goes to Buffalo, immediately his numbers tank. So I see where they're coming from there. It's just a leap. Um, so I've also heard that like, you know, the Flyers analytics department is not, does not share the vitriol that the public sphere has of Ristolainen. I don't gather that that's a consensus view in terms of private analytics departments, but I gather the fly, like the fly, but I don't think the Flyers analytics department was like walking out of the room when they did this trade. I think they were okay with it based on their preconception of Ristolainen, the player, and what they believe he can be. Again, big risk, but we'll see. Well, I will say, I, I think um, you need to, com to combine the two trades here, including uh, like in terms of the Gosses Bear transaction that came before this, and then this one in terms of the, the bet they made here, just because of the way the cap mechanics work, in my opinion, where they gave away the second and, and the seventh to essentially dump what was Gosses Bear's. 4.5 or so years. million. Yeah. yeah. 4.5, 4. two more years. 
And then, and then obviously they include uh, Robert Haig in, in this Ristolainen trade. So it's pretty much the money sort of balances out in terms of they're just sliding Ristolainen into that spot. And I think by Dom's projection model, they gave away like 10 wins worth of future value or so in terms of all the picks they shed in the process, which obviously all of those picks are, are, are projections in their own right and carry their own risk in terms of nailing them and actually getting a positive NHL value out of them. But it's, it's a pretty hefty price regardless of the player, let alone the fact that you're talking about a player with the uh, resume that Ristolainen has. And and so I think this is a great time to, to just get into this. We've been tiptoeing around it, but I think that the, the debate in terms of the analytics versus the eye test, especially for a player like Ristolainen is so fascinating to me because analytically his on-ice metrics have been uniformly bleak. I think I would love to see some sort of a private company showed me what he's actually done well because <laughs> it certainly hasn't translated into any sort of shot expected or actual goal metrics when he's been on the ice especially at even strength uh he's in the third percentile in terms of war for defensemen he's 12th in even strength offense 13th in even strength defense it's been bad and pretty much uh, it's a lot of red whenever you look at his player cards now i think you're right the natural inclination is to give him a pass because of the playing environment which has admittedly been a house of horrors in his eight years in Buffalo. And it's really tough for anyone to look good in that environment. And we've seen a number of players instantly move to different situations and, and uh, thrive and flourish. I, I I'm willing to buy the idea. It's plausible that they could get more value out of him going to Philly, playing with better players, being asked to do less, and they can get better results out of him. The one argument I have no time for though, is that this is an analytics versus eye test argument because I've watched a lot of Rasmus Lainen and I just, I have to admit, I, I do not see why he is beloved by people who, who think that he does certain things well on the ice. I, I just don't see it. Like I, I've, I've, I can vouch for the fact that I have watched Rasmus Lainen play probably too much hockey for the Buffalo <laughs> Sabres over the years. And it's just, I'm, I'm baffled to hear that people have turned this into an analytics versus eye test argument. Yeah. I, I mean, I get, pigeonholed I think sometimes as like the stat guy but I watch a lot of hockey and I've watched a lot of wrestlers versus the line and because you know wrestlers versus the line to me is a fascinating player so of course when I'm watching a Buffalo Sabres game I'm going to zero in on him like full disclosure I loved wrestlers versus the line and in his draft year he was if you remember that was the year the Flyers took Samuel Moran and I remember wanting wrestlers versus the line and to slip to the Flyers so they could take him like he was the guy I wanted in that draft year so when he got you know I, that was a decade he, ago yeah, it was 2013. We're yeah. literally coming up on a decade. I, we are getting old. Um, but uh, so when he when he made the NHL, I mean, I made a point to watch him. And, you know, he's 19. You're like, oh, OK, he doesn't look that great, but he's 19. You know, they, they've rushed him, whatever. And he gets into his early 20s. And then you're starting to think, OK, like this is sort of the guy he is. And it was very rare when I watched him and was impressed. And a lot of it, honestly boiled down to his work in the defensive zone, which I find in a word awful. Like he just, he just doesn't seem, or at least to me, he never seems like he really has a plan beyond just like chase the puck. And that might partially be system oriented, but like, for example, the, the, the concept the whole concept, I think, in the Flyers' eyes, beyond beyond Rasmus Dalian, is that he's going to slot in on the second pair. They're going to put him next to, to Travis Sanheim. And part of that thinking is Travis Sanheim is, in my opinion, a legitimately pretty darn good defenseman. The one thing he doesn't have, he for his size, he is not physical at all. 
He's not, he just, he's not comfortable, you know, throwing his weight around using his size. He's more of a finesse player. And that obviously rubs, you know, a lot of people the wrong way, particularly in Philadelphia. But so, so one other thought process, put wrist line next to him. Wrist line will do the porch clearing. He'll do the physical stuff, which probably like that probably makes sense. But another of, of Travis Stanheim's weak points is that he's gotten better at this, but he's never been fully comfortable. Like, off puck instincts in the defensive zone. He's more of a guy with the puck. You know, he's a guy who I think puts up good defensive metrics because his team just has the puck more than the other team, not because he's like this secret defensive stalwart. Well, Rasmus Ristolainen, in my mind, has kind of the same problem, just in a different way, like putting himself out of position to, to, to hit a guy or just running after the puck and like neglecting to do a switch. Like these are the kind of things that when I watch him, it's just like facepalm moments in the defensive zone. And I don't know how that can work with a Travis Sanheim who also at times, I mean, I've compared Travis Sanheim on multiple occasions to Jake Gardner. Because Jay Gardner was a one, another one of those guys where, you know, in his prime, great play driver, great numbers, you know, in aggregate was great, but he'd have those moments where they would stick in your head because they'd just be like, Jake, what were you thinking? And Sandheim's the same way, and Ristolainen's the same way. And, you know, again, maybe it's system-oriented. Maybe you put him in a system with more structure, you know, with, with better coaching, with more stable coaching. Maybe you can coach that out of him. Maybe you can coach him to be a more, a more play a more structured, simple game in the defensive zone. But again, as I mentioned earlier, that's a risk because he hasn't done it before. So you're you're betting on him being better in a specific area than he's ever been in his career and if he is the flyers look like geniuses that they fixed Rasmus Ristolainen but if he's not everybody's going to look at the flyers and be like everyone saw this coming how did you not well i think ironically anyone that is uh taking the time right now to dispute his analytics and cite the eye test as a reason to be a believer in the player um is either not necessarily watching this line and is kind of hanging on to the pedigree of what he was thought to be heading into the league, which is silly, obviously now, because he's 27 with over 500 NHL games and nearly 10,000 five on five minutes to his name. And, and we need to adjust to what the actual results we've seen on the ice from him. But the other for me is, it's possible that the people are watching Ristolainen and, and are either valuing the wrong things or looking for the wrong things, right? Because, I, I sent you this after the trade had happened, but I had this like in the back of my head, it's implanted this game that the Flyers and Sabres played. I think it was March 29th this past season. Uh, it was during the Sabres losing streak. I think it actually extended it to 18 games where the Flyers fell down three, nothing early on and then made a third period comeback and eventually won an overtime to extend that losing streak. And in that th third period, it was like the peak wrist line in, uh, performance for me where he you could see why people he pops off the page for people because he was involved in like every play he was very active you could like see him doing stuff around the puck on the ice looked really big of course moved <laughs> around pretty well for his size but it boils down to for me the problem that he doesn't actually either know how to use any of that stuff effectively or doesn't actually get functional value out of it because what he did in the process was he takes the puck around the net, 
And then without even any real forecheck on him, he tries to shoot it off the glass. It gets knocked down by a Flyers player. He chases that player to the boards to try and rub him off the puck. And instead, the puck just winds up going to the front of the net and the Flyers have like a 2 on 0 for an easy tap-in where Ristolainen probably should have been. Then he takes a penalty in front of the net and during a battle where he just inexplicably cross-checks someone in the back. And yeah, I guess it's a very physical play. Didn't necessarily lead to any positive outcome for his team there. And then I think it was uh, the last goal where Couturier basically just doesn't get his stick tied up in front of the net. Ristolainen's standing there and looking big. And I think he's like trying to slash him and cross-check him, but he doesn't take the stick away and, and the puck goes into the net. And so for me, that was just a classic example of it, you you kind of look at it two ways. One, oh, the physical tools are there, but ultimately the results aren't there. And that's kind of the the ultimate sort of story of his career for me that the actual tools and talents haven't manifested themselves into anything of value for the Sabres. Yeah, I mean, I've long argued um, on podcasts, on Twitter. And I don't think I really ever put it resigned in much in articles because he wasn't on the Flyers. I cover the Flyers. But I mean, I've long argued that, you know, people people would say about Ristolainen that, well, you can't blame him for being on a bad team. And my argument was one of the reasons why they're a bad team is because they have Rasmus Ristolainen on their first pair. And I think the statement I made was that this was before this season, like when they because if you remember, there was like some talk from people that like, well, maybe the Sabres will be pretty good this year. They could be, you know, they went out and they got Taylor Hall, like they could be fun. And the statement I made on my podcast was I will start taking the Buffalo Sabres seriously as a playoff team. The day that Rasmus Ristolainen isn't on their top pair and not a day sooner. And I hold to that. <laughs> um, now for the Flyers, I presume he'll be on their second pair. So there's that, but yeah, you know, he's his performance in Buffalo, it's not it can't just be chalked up to the team. It can't. And I mean part of that I put in my my breakdown of the of the trade in my article I did where you know, yeah, you can make the argument that he's had a lot of bad teammates and he has. I mean, Buffalo's has not been good. But he has had some good teammates. He has played with Jack Eichel. He has played with Sam Reinhardt. He has played with Jeff Skinner, even though Jeff Skinner. Ryan O'Reilly. Yep. Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Great player as well. And, you know, I just looked over the last three years okay. and all three of those guys, Eichel, Reinhardt and Skinner all do substantially better when not playing with restless line. And it's not, I can't imagine it's a case where, cause like, like obviously like wowies aren't perfect. Like the with or without you says they're not perfect by any means. There's a lot they miss, but it's hard for me to imagine that like Jack Eichel only faces off against top lines when he's not backed by Rastus Ristolainen. Like it's Jack Eichel. The other team is throwing out their best players to face off against Jack Eichel whenever they can, regardless of whether Rastus Ristolainen is behind him or not. And if Jack Eichel, an objectively great hockey player, is getting outshot, outchanced, and outscored with Rastus Ristolainen behind him. And then when Rastus Ristolainen is not behind him, Jack Eichel is helping the Sabres to outchance, outshoot, and outscore the opposition. Well, maybe it's because when he's on the ice with Rastus Ristolainen, the team isn't that good. And if he can drag down Jack Eichel, pretty much can probably drag down anybody. Yeah. I mean, I guess in an ideal world, as you said, you pair him with Sandheim, you hope that he defers when they have the puck more to Sandheim, who, who's a good puck carrier, and maybe he can handle more of the transition work and he just does more of the dirty work. If 
they seem still set, I think, on on trying to get off of James Van Riemsdyk's contract. Uh, you know, I think they were hoping that he would be taken by Seattle. And I think either they're either going to try to trade him or, or Voracek and clear some of that money for, for yep. future use. And if you move Van Riemsdyk, maybe you use just to line in as a net front guy on the power play a little bit, because I, I find it hard to believe that he's going to be playing on a point there, especially in the top unit. But that would be it, interesting. I, I just keep coming back to, like, for me, it's just, any way you slice it, it's just such a difficult trade to justify given the timing, given the set of circumstances. It blows my mind that we'll still see on the details but based on the rumored return that the Sabres got more for Ristolainen that they're going to get for Sam Reinhardt, who I think is like 10 times the player that Ristolainen is. I think from the Flyers' perspective, it's so, like, either he does well out of the gate in, in a small sample, and because of the acquisition cost you paid, it's very easy to see them convincing themselves into doubling down on it and investing in him long-term with an extension, which would obviously present its own uh, difficulties. Or it goes poorly based on his career trajectory so far, and it winds up being a one-year thing. And at that point, you basically wound up mortgaging uh, two or three very useful assets for a player that you have nothing to ultimately show for from. And so I don't even know what the better or worst case scenario yeah. is in terms of this working out, whether it's a short-term thing and you kind of bite the bullet as a sunk cost or whether it is uh, kind of this like false hope that leads to uh, a long-term financial commitment, but both seem pretty unappealing and they've kind of boxed themselves into this weird position now with a player who is going to be an unrestricted free agent after this season and has a weird set of incentives for, for both the team and the organization or, and the player in terms of like how this is going to shake out. Yeah. I mean that, and that's the, that's the rub, right? You know, obviously the best case scenario for the Flyers is if Ristolainen turns his career around, plays well, they sign him to, you know, a lucrative deal that he then proceeds to live up to because they fixed Rasmus Ristolainen. And that's the best case scenario. But you're right. You know, there's there's multiple ways this could look bad. You know, if he if he doesn't play well and they sign him or I mean, and I'm not even ruling this out. I think it's possible they could sign him before the season because the, the thing that raises my eyebrows about this move, and, and I, I pushed Chuck Fletcher on it yesterday in his press conference, and he kind of you know danced around it. But Chuck Fletcher flat out said last week when we interviewed him, you know, in his like offseason availability, that he would only trade the thirteenth pick for a long-term solution. And I very much took that to mean that he wasn't going to trade it for a rental. And I also very much took that to be a direct point made about Seth Jones because the Flyers were absolutely in on Seth Jones. They had serious talks about him. Seth Jones at the time was not willing to commit to re-signing with Philadelphia beyond this season. So the Flyers pulled out of the talks because they were like, we're not going to give up. And, and granted, they were going to have to give up a lot more than just the 13th overall pick. They were going to have to give up young players. They're going to probably have to give up another first round pick. But their point was, we're not going to give up all that you know, we're not going to give up a 13th overall pick for a rental. Well, then they gave up the 13th overall pick for a rental, which leads me to believe that they don't view him as a rental. And I wonder if they're just going to up and sign him a year early, which I think would be a big mistake because in my mind, if you're going to take a risk like this, you have to see how he plays here. Like you have to, because this isn't a guy like this is it. This isn't Ryan Ellis. This isn't a guy who for years and years and years has delivered strong results. And yeah, you're worried that maybe he might drop off age wise, but this is a guy who's never had strong results anywhere other than the power play. So if you're going to commit to him, you have to see if he can turn it around here first. And if he doesn't, 
then you did give up a first round pick for a rental. Granted, in a weak draft, you know, in a weak draft, in a very, you know, uncertain draft in terms of evaluation. So I get that, you know, if you're going to take a swing on a guy and give up a first round pick, this is probably the draft to do it. I, I respect that line of thinking. But still, you end up in a situation where you say you're not going to trade him for a rental, you trade it for a rental, you trade it for a rental. So does that then put you in the situation where, well, now we got to resign to justify we gave up the first round pick. And this is why I made the comparison, not player to player because they totally different styles of play. Ristolainen is way more physical, way better on the power play better physical tools. But this is why I made the comparison to Andrew McDonald, because the Flyers were in the exact same position where they they traded for him and they gave up enough assets that they almost felt like, well, we gave up all those assets. We got to re-sign him. And I wonder if they're putting themselves in the same position with Ristolainen where, you know, can they even justify to themselves that he could only be a rental or have they put themselves in the position where like, well, we got to sign him because if we don't sign and then we gave him a first round pick for one year of this guy. And that's scary. I mean, I think the scary thing is uh, clearly the flyers were willing to pay the most. And that's why the Sabres took, took this offer. It many teams, I think were interested in wrist line they were season yeah. by all accounts yeah. uh, to varying degrees. And I had honestly can like, I, I'm rarely surprised in terms of transactional news in, in this league because I, I I've just kind of grown to assume that there's going to be loose cannons out there to do wild stuff. But for me, I had I had talked myself into the Sabers having really missed the window in terms of getting positive assets for Ristolina at this point. Like two years ago, there were a lot of rumblings and I, I think verified ones that they could have explored a Nikolai Ehlers trade after a down season for him, for Ristolainen. And that obviously would have been a home run deal for the Sabres back then. But just based on the way things had gone, I was like, all right, with one year left as a UFA, like maybe they could get a depth pick or, or just basically get some other project back in return. For them to get uh, numerous young draft assets here is, is is a great piece of work for the Sabres, a very risky one for the Flyers. And, and I, I don't know what else there is to say about this trade in, in, in terms of what Ristolainen is going to be or, or what the, the Flyers were thinking. It, it's a mystifying one to me. I understand the appeal in terms of the theoretical tools. I just, I would love to see, I would love to be a fly on the wall for what they actually were able to either visibly see in the numbers or the eye test that would lead them to believe that this was the right risk to take. I just would love to see what was behind door number two. Like, like what, what other options did they have in terms of what you could move the 13th pick for? What other options did they have in terms of, because I, I acknowledge that the flyers probably needed a physical presence on the blue line. You know, you have Provorov who isn't all that physical Ellis, who's five ten, Travis Sanheim, who is not physical, Justin Braun, who kits sometimes, but he's not really a physical presence. Then you're going to add Cam York, who's small. Yeah. You probably needed a guy who is gonna, you know, hit hit somebody, you know, clear the crease, do that penalty kill stuff. I get that. But you wonder, like, you know, David Svar was out there, probably going to be a free agent. They were willing to trade his rights. You know, you got other guys. Like, you know, I'm not a huge Zach Bogosian fan, but at least he wouldn't cost a first-round pick. Like, there were guys, Travis Hamanek apparently, willing to, you know, not only play in Western Canada like before. And I'm not, like, huge fans of some of these guys, but – they wouldn't have cost what Ristolainen costs in terms of trade value, certainly because they're free agents. And 
they certainly won't cost as much in free agency as I suspect Ristolainen will get on his next deal because of the heavy minutes he's played in his career because of the points he put up. I mean, he gives himself good comparables, even if the advanced stats aren't great, because as we know, contracts really aren't given out by, you know, Corsi and expected goals. So to me, I just wonder, you know, was this really the best option or did they just fall in love with the idea of Rasmus Ristolainen? And if, if this was the only option, if you found out that none of those free agents were interested in signing in Philly, that, you know, there was no way you could pry Josh Manson out of Anaheim, that this was the only way to get the stylistic fit. I still don't like it, but at least I understand it a little bit more. But if there were other ways to get that type of guy and you just were like, now nah, we want Ristolainen, that's, that's concerning. There are. If you're so hell-bent on it, and I understand the, the rationale, you don't pay a premium for that. There's other avenues to explore. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I think it'll be a fascinating year for both the Flyers, for Ristolainen, for, for you, Charlie O'Connor, covering <laughs> covering the team and the player. It'll be I'm fun. looking forward to the coverage. It's going to be a content goldmine if his first eight years in the league have been any sort of indication. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So plug some stuff. What, uh, what are you working on these days and where can people check you out? Yeah, I mean, still writing for the athletic. You know, my uh, my Twitter handle is Charlie O underscore con. Um, still on the weekly BSH radio show. You can you know listen to that on all the all the streaming services. Subscribe if you're interested. We do our, our flagship show every week, and then we have you know a ton of other shows as well. Um, so it's really like a full on almost podcast network in a sense. Um, so yeah, you know, there's the main places you can find me. And obviously right now the main focus is making sense of this off season, the flyers are having, but, uh, certainly plan to have more, uh, more content coming the rest of the summer and then into next season, which will be interesting. I mean, I look, I would, we talked about this earlier. I would love nothing more. Um, you know, not because of like, you know, fandom or anything, but I would love nothing more than risk line and to turn it around because that would be an incredible story. That would be a fascinating story and I would love to break it down and love to figure out, you know, what changes were made and you know, what he's done to improve his game. It's just a risk that he's going to be able to do it. And I mean, I'm skeptical, but I'm willing to keep an open mind and we'll see what the flyers get out of them when, uh, when October rolls around. And if they're right, it will be pretty cool. It would. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to your coverage of it. Uh, keep up the great work and we'll have you back on sometime here down the road. So until then, man, take care. All right. Thanks to meet you. All right, before we get out of here, I wanted to tack on a quick little explainer to end the show. We recorded right before the draft resumed this morning, before round two kicked off. And obviously, since then, the Flyers answered one of our questions that we brought up during the show and hinted at by shipping Jacob Orchek back to Columbus for Cam Atkinson on a one-for-one deal. Uh, we'll save actual deeper analysis for it uh, for a future show when we do one uh, fully devoted to Columbus's busy offseason so far. But I did want to quickly address it here just for anyone that listened and was wondering why we hadn't mentioned it yet. So uh, all the other stuff still holds up. So it's not that big of a deal for our purposes here. But I wouldn't be surprised to see even more moves by the Flyers to come, uh, especially with all the noise that we've been hearing uh persisting around their interest in Vlad Tarasenko and are still out there so anyways uh it should be a uh, a fun and busy off season and all this stuff is obviously evolving by the hour seemingly so um that's why i wanted to get the show out there as soon as possible just because uh, i wanted people to be able to listen to it while it was timely and uh, that was the kind of the purpose of these two smaller recent trade reaction episodes i know they're a bit shorter than the usual deep dives we do but 
it gave us an opportunity to really get into them and get them out there while they're still relevant and before other stuff changes. So we'll have plenty more off-season content coming here over the next week or so. So look forward to that. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. If you have been digging the higher volume of episodes recently, please consider taking a minute out of your day to go leave the PDO cast a quick little rating and review. Uh, many of you have done so already, and each one is greatly appreciated and super helpful. So that's going to be it for today's episode. We'll be back soon. And until then. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypdocast. Mm-hmm.